With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tark Freed was only 13 when his family moved from Pakistan to Connecticut. He started working at a flower shop to make money, and at 17, he opened his own. This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Rich Filoni. Farid is the founder and CEO of Edible Arrangements. He cornered a market that no one even knew existed. Baskets of fruit cut up to look like giant flower bouquets. Today, his business has 900 franchises across nine countries, bringing in more than half a billion dollars in sales each year. It hasn't all been easy. He's had to contend with everything from disgruntled franchisees to conspiracy theories and racist online trolling. But his unwavering optimism has pushed him through struggles from the very beginning. No one thought it would be successful. The way I did it was that uh, I made some arrangements and started to send it out to some customers ours in the flower business. And they would call back and say, this is great. You know, when can I order one? And then I went and ran to a bank and I said, look, you know, I got this great idea. I send it to customers and they want to buy multiple of them. They want to know when to send it. I just need like $120,000 to open a store. And I got denied, you know. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they looked at it and says, you know, no one really does this. And, and the ones who did do it were struggling with it. And uh, so we just bootstrapped it, you know, just started it on the side of our flower shop with about a 600 square foot location, laid the tiles ourselves, you know, bought the counters ourselves, did everything we could. And on the first holiday, you know, kind of three days before Easter, 28 orders came in. You know, back then we didn't have a process on how to do it. We used to do everything manually. Mm-hmm. It took us all day, but <laughs> it was like a, an amazing hit. I mean, 28 doesn't sound like a lot, <laughs> but when you just start and you don't have much of a budget, it was really cool. So how many are you cranking out now. How, how big has the company gotten? It's Yeah, massive. so we're, collectively all the companies will do about $600 million this year and uh, we have uh, over 1,200 stores. It's a franchise model. That's right. How did you know how to get that working? I, I know that like someone had to explain to you what a franchise even was, right? So I've been very lucky in a way that when opportunities knock, I don't kind of sweat it. You don't get worried about how we're going to do this, or how we're going to do that. People used to say, well, you fake it really well. So I think, you know, what happened was we had a tiny little store about 600 square feet and, and a person comes into Connecticut to visit his mom and he sees the arrangement at the house. And he walks into the store and he says, uh, hey, I want to buy a franchise. Are you franchising? I hadn't even thought about franchising. So I said, of course we're going to franchise. Where do you want to do it? And he said, Boston. Because that's a customer walking in, and I always believe that you give the customer what they want. And and that's the secret to success, is that you always look at things from the customer's point of view. And that was my first franchise customer. Went to the Yellow Pages, found someone on how to franchise, and he guided me through it. And we registered our first franchise and started uh, selling franchises about a year later. And so you started this when you were... 
30, but you started your first business when you were 17? 17, yeah. Started my first flower shop when I was 17. So again, didn't know much about business. If I knew a lot, I probably would have done it. So really dumb about what would happen. So you just kind of dive in and you figure it out along the way. You came over here as a kid from Pakistan, right? That's right. 13-year-old kid with his family. Came from a very poor family. And, and you know, we ended up getting lucky that uh, my father was able to get a visa because of my uncle. And my f- father worked out uh, as a machinist. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was getting about $8 an hour. And then he was working at McDonald's as his part-time job. And then he would work on the weekends at Burger King. So franchising was always in the family, you know. So there was always... <laughs> a, so everybody helped, you know. So I would shovel snow and cut grass and then, you know, kind of clean leaves and everything. And then I got a paper route. In the process of getting that paper route, there was a flower shop on my route that we used to deliver papers to. And my brother just asked him one day, you know, on, on a really cold day, it was in the winter, he asked him, hey, are you looking for some help? And it was Charlie Ferriselli, Ferriselli's Flowers in West Haven, Connecticut. And Charlie was one of those amazing neighborhood people who turned around and said, yeah, kid, come on down. You know, And I used to actually help people put flowers in their car and things like that, and then maybe ring it up and make some bouquets or clean up the shop. And that's where I learned the flower business, you know, when I was 13 and uh, at 17 opened my first flower shop. Did you have like this entrepreneurial spirit inside you? I think I got my entrepreneurial bug from Charlie Ferrisoli. You know, this is okay. a small business owner. My kids are spending a lot of time working at small businesses, and I think everybody should. You know, I worked at McDonald's. I worked at Burger King. I learned a lot about business by working there and systems and everything. So I saw this man in action where, for him, customers were everything, and it was just survival. You know, you're a small business owner. You do whatever needs to be done. So that's where I got the first kind of the bug of entrepreneurship. And I didn't know it was called entrepreneurship. I I thought it was just, you know, you open up a flower shop. And it just mouthballed from there where, you know, whenever an opportunity came, we would open it. So when a second flower shop needed to be opened, we just opened it. You know, we figured out how to do it against all odds and everything. What was the experience like going from Pakistan to a new life in Connecticut? What was that like as a family and for you personally? You know, when you're a 12 or 13-year-old, you're not really thinking. You're thinking you're going somewhere. It doesn't matter how poor you are or anything. That's life. But when we came here, things were very different. The parents struggled, but it was so much better, and especially from my mother. I used to remember my mother said that her life started when she came here, you know, so because my great-grandfather had come here as a laborer back at the turn of the century, and there was a lot of stories about America and the people in America and the opportunity and the things you can do. And so she just lit us up at that point to say, okay, you know, time to get busy, get out there, do stuff, go do whatever you need to do, because uh, I've heard that you can make it here, so go make it. As you were building the business, how did you figure out a way to make this concept that may have seemed like maybe a novelty concept that could work in a small boutique setting and just have it be this huge sustainable business around these fruit arrangements? You know, so I worked at the flower shop between 13 and 15. And back then there used to be this, uh, if you really did good in school, you could get this piece of paper that told you you could get a job. And I used that to work at Burger King. And at Burger King, I learned about branding. You know, what I saw was that everything was systematic. And the day I turned 16, I got a job at McDonald's because I always wanted to work at McDonald's. And so the concept for me 
even when I was working uh, at the flower shop at 13, that it was all about the customer. You know, it's that you do things from a customer's point of view, you you make the customer happy. And uh, the other thing is branding. Even when we had our flower shop, I, you know, I made a logo, I tried to act as a brand. But when we did Edible, that's when all those years of experience gave me an opportunity to kind of create a brand. And so we spent the first six or seven months of creating a logo. And I was lucky enough that I had worked with someone whose brother was a designer, and he designed our logo. The logo still today I, I think I got for like $1,100 yeah. <laughs> uh, designed by a person who probably would charge hundreds of thousands of dollars these days. And I showed him an arrangement and he made the logo. I think one, it's a brand. Second, you know, it's really the vision that I never dreamed that I would have 600 stores. I think uh, there was an Inc. article in 2001 that came to me and I said 35 locations, but 35 perfect locations, you know, really executed right in five years. And in those five years, we opened 500 because we were trying to do perfect 35. The dream wasn't really big that we're going to open thousands of these. Uh, But when you can do one or two or 10 right, then it's easy to replicate as long as you're taking care of every process you know, making sure that what are you here for? And our stores, and even now when I run business, our whole objective is all about the customer, that experience, because the thing about Edible is it not only does it have to taste great, but it has to look amazing, it has to be delivered on time, you have to handle the logistics of it, so that a customer experience is what makes them keep coming back and everything. And that's what I found at 12, and it's still true. When did your ambition for it to be just maybe have 30 locations, 50 locations, what switched where let's have hundreds of these, and not just even in the area where you started, but like all over the world? Like, when did that switch go? I always felt that there's really no challenge or boundary, especially as the internet came around and what technology allowed you to do. And, you know, 1999, 2000 was like this magical time where anybody that was in technology was now using technology to bring products to customers, you know, through the web and everything. So you saw this opportunity and POS was becoming easier before that, creating networks and all those things was really expensive. You know, if you wanted to have 10 or 15 locations, connecting them required very complex and expensive systems. Now it wasn't. So I think for me, the aha moment was we were building those five or 10 locations and people started coming to us from California. California, people would tell me, do you really want to go to California? You should really grow out within Connecticut and maybe New York or New Jersey. And I would tell them, I, you know, it's a five-hour flight, but we're connected with them all the time through the internet, email and whatever messaging systems and everything that was back then, that I don't think it's a challenge anymore. So people came to us from Dubai and said, hey, can we open there? So sure, you know, and uh, within the States, as people came, we were able to hire people as you sell more stores, that that's how you expand. Because once we planted the flag in California, California, that's when other people in California came to us and said, I want to buy more stores, you know, and then the stores just kept growing. So it was almost like a, a domino effect. And, right. and, and even coming from other countries, it, it was almost like, oh, why not? That's right. So when you're saying that you always wanted to have like each of these locations be like perfect, what happens now when you're scaling? How are you able to keep that in mind and what were some of the challenges that arose there? So there are always challenges. You know, I think in any business, people are the ones that make it or break it, right? So I think first, getting the right people. People ask me, why didn't you do corporate stores? Why did you franchise? Number one, I couldn't get the money to do corporate stores. It was, you know, very debt intensive and everything. But a person comes in who says, hey, I like what you're doing and I want to do that in Waltham, Connecticut. I want to do that in New Jersey. And we always felt that they're just like us. You know, 
we're, we're a small business owner and we know the neighborhood, we know what the challenges are, they'll hire the people, they have to have that passion and, and they'll have the love for the brand. And that's what happened, you know, in our concept, it, it was really selecting the right people who kept making us grow. You know, my passion has always been the small business owners because I think they're magical. They not only are you know, kind of working in that neighborhood, but they're living in that neighborhood. So they're actually look, making, looking to make their community better and they're part of that community. And that was the secret to our success, that we always looked for that right person. And then they would, of course, hire the right people. And I always hoped that they would do it like the way Charlie did it, where he inspired us all. Um, and the so, guy from your childhood. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he's a 13-year-old that we would, you know, jump through hoops for this guy because he was just an amazing guy who, who, who went out, who worked harder than all of you. And he loved customers and had a successful business. Yeah. So I think that's what we have. We have very connected franchisees in that community that are now delivering this product. And when you could put a little love in it, it goes a long way. And with any scaled success, there would be bumps along the way. Like in, in 2010, when was it like 170 franchisees filed a lawsuit? They were unhappy with the way that you changed the new terms of service. What happened there? So I feel that Every five years, a person has to do a, what I would call a soft boot. And every 10 years, you have to do a hard boot. You know, you have to really look at your concept and you have to really change it around. In 2010, 2008, we were coming up to our first 10-year anniversary. And we were doing well. And I felt that we have to really look internally and we have to change. The world was changing. I mean, you know, the iPhone and all these things that were happening, that were connecting the customer. It was moving a lot faster than we, you know, that it used to move. So with that, uh, you start to push some initiatives out there that doesn't make people happy. It's difficult to get along in a family, let alone a franchise concept. So, of course, you're going to have disagreements. We had close to 900 stores at that time. So we had a certain number of franchisees that had issues. And we worked through them. And we're going through that change one more time. We're in the middle of our next 10 years. I mean, it's gone by so quickly where now we have to evolve again. You know, all around us, it's, it's the world of Amazon now. It's not only digital, but lucky for us that people are going more towards natural and fruit. And, you know, so we are now launching a smoothie concept, putting a yogurt and smoothie because we have fruit. And that same fruit can be used to make juice bars and all these things. So there's a business opportunity uh, and it's a, another hard boot. Were there lessons from the first hard reboot that you're going to take to this upcoming second one to maybe make it just go a little easier? I don't think change is ever easy. You know, I can sit here and say, oh, yeah, you know, it'll be easy. Change is never easy, be it in a personal life or in business. And it's even harder in business because my partners in franchising is 900 entrepreneurs, there are 900 people just like me. So the best part of franchising is that if you could convince these 900 franchisees of something, you'll move mountains. And at the same time, convincing them, you know, it takes a lot, you know, to, because these are 900 different personalities. That's what makes them successful. So with that, it's never going to be easy, but it has to happen. And, and we have to keep changing. And in business, everybody has to change. Were there communication lessons maybe that you learned from the first time where you can kind of bring them in? Oh, of a course. Bit easier. I, yeah. I think the first thing is you have to be clear about where you're going. That doesn't mean you won't be misunderstood because you're talking about something. I used to always say that I have to think five years ahead of where you are. 
And that's my job, the job of a CEO or a franchisor, that you have to see where you want the brand to be five years from now. When our franchisees have just finished implementing a change, I'm thinking of something new to say, I think we're going to need to do this. But then you start to communicate that. So this whole smoothie concept and this whole what we're calling edible to go, this discussion has been going on for five, six years that we need to do this. And now we're finally starting to do it. And so it takes a while. So you have to first have that soft communication and you have to communicate, communicate often. What's worked really well for me is you have to make yourself available. You know, so every one of my franchisees has to have my number on speed dial. So, you know, they can call me and, you know, go over it. So any franchisee throughout the world could contact that, you. Oh, they're my customers, of course. Yeah. They're my customers, they're my partners, of course. Yeah. You, know, you know, not all every conversation goes good, but that's how it's supposed <laughs> to be. Yeah, and do you think that you maybe didn't communicate as well in the first reboot that it, it seems clearer now that you need to kind of give them more... Uh, well, no, I, I think anyone that starts a business and if they're going to get into franchising... You will never get it perfect. You won't get 100% of the people. So when they talk about 170 franchisees, that's out of almost 1,000 stores. So you're always going to have that risk. And when you want to change, you're going to risk that, that there is going to be some people who are going to disagree. But you don't stop, especially when you know that it's beneficial in the long run and you need to do it. I, I hope it never happens again. But at the same time, you know, it's part of business. And then in 2013, you established your foundation, been very active in philanthropy. And what was odd is that in 2014, there were these allegations of money going to Hamas from the foundation, and you tried to ignore it, but you actually had to release a public statement on that. What happened there? Well, you know, I I think there'll always be groups of people, especially when you have this element of Islamophobia and they look at people from and judge people by their color or their origin or something of that sort. There'll always be someone who says something, either without checking up on you or calling or or trying to get validation towards it. Everything we were giving money to organizations within the states, and these are organizations that other brands were giving money to and everything. You know, giving back to the community is a very very important thing in my family. I mean, especially in a country that gave us so much. And when these things came up, I mean, even the ADL came out with a statement said none of these. You know, That's the anti-defamation. Yeah, yeah. Anti, yeah, they yeah. came out and said none of these things are true. I've faced these kind of remarks and discriminatory things before. But, you know, when you measure that to the success you've gone on the other side, it's insignificant. But at the same time, you have to address them. You have to make sure you take them on and, and you tell people, hey, it's everything is transparent. Everything is right in front of you. You can't just accuse someone of something. And uh, not only was none of that true, but, you know, there was nothing factual behind it or anything. And I was willing to address any of those openly on anyone who wants to address them. So you were saying that you've faced that type of things before. What has it been like to be a Muslim American in this situation where there could be this Islamophobia in the country? Yeah, I, I don't think as much as a Muslim American, as just as a minority sometimes. It's, it's a difficult time. You know, as a minority, when we came here in the beginning, there were, um, you know, I don't address it because there were maybe 99% of the people who were open arms and amazing. I mean, there were the Charlie Ferrisellis who were helping you to succeed. So it would be disingenuous of me to spend a lot of time on, oh, there's discrimination. No, I've been blessed with so much. 
you're supposed to share in that, especially when others have shared their time and their wealth and their resources. And I am built by many people who gave their time and gave their resources and kind of encouraged me. Uh, so I think that part has only gotten stronger that I'm, uh, you know, that I have a lot more to do in giving back and everything. When I was young, you faced some of these things, but nothing compared to the success that we've gotten. It's been an amazing journey. So you see it as a distraction. I think it's no different than a bump in the road. I, I think you can't let it get to you. I mean, just imagine being an immigrant who, one, parents can't afford to dress them well, you know, because they're poor. And second, you wear the wrong sneakers and you're not the hip person and your English isn't that good and you're intimidated. And then you come to this country where things are so much more sophisticated than where you grew up. I mean, we grew up on a farm. You know, so we didn't have anything. We didn't have a car. You know, I mean, I, I, my grandmother's house didn't even have electricity. You know, my mother used to share stories that she got her first pair of shoes when she was seven years old. And on a rainy day, she wouldn't wear it. You know, she would go barefoot because she didn't want her shoes to get dirty. So when you come from that background, a lot of these things are insignificant at that time when you look at those stories and everything. So um, you face a lot of these things, but there's so much more to do. And you don't get intimidated by this. You don't turn around and stop doing stuff. And a lot of times people will attack you because they want to call something out that is not true or, or they want to say something to discourage you. And people ask me, oh, does this mean you're going to stop giving? I said, no, no, no. This means you give mm -hmm. more. You do more. You, 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 so you double down on it. Yeah, right? you have to. Look at it. Why? Because, you know, I didn't stop a long time ago when people said something like, go back to your country. I'm like, I am in my country. You know, this is my country. You know, my mother used to say, you have to leave the world a better place. You have to do your part. And as you go, you have to leave a legacy behind. And if not for other people, but at least for your children. And she left an amazing legacy for us. And we have to do better. Were your parents able to see you reach your level of success? My mother wasn't able to. So my mother passed away in 2005, and she was my first employee. When I did the flower shop, I would leave her at the shop in the morning, and I would go to high school, and she would watch the shop for the first two years. My mother was the true superhero in our family, and she did everything. And uh, she passed away in 2005, just when the company started to take off. And so she was never relieved for someone who was instrumental in the success for her kids. And as we came here, because she was following her grandfather's kind of dream of coming here, she wasn't really able to see it. But I'm sure she's looking down, smiling at what she was able to help us do. Yeah. And did you incorporate more of your family into your business as well? My daughter has just joined. She's a brilliant young lady. And so she's, you know, hopefully How old is she? she'll be running one day. She's 24. So uh, it's an amazing feeling when your next generation comes in and, and they're more passionate than you at saying, okay, all right, you know, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to take it to the next level. And, uh, you know, she's as smart as her grandmother and uh, <laughs> she's brilliant and, and doing an amazing job. Do you want to keep this a family company? I would like my family to be involved. I think, you know, uh, I will do my part, pass the baton and see what they want to do. My philosophy is that you always give businesses to your children. And we have that. And I hope that now it's in the DNA, this whole entrepreneurship and businesses and everything. And she's a lot smarter than me. And I think uh, my daughter will probably take it to whole new heights. When we were talking about with success, there comes like bumps in the road. Did you ever feel that when you came into one of these challenges that you had to reassert your leadership among your team to get them back on track or not be distracted? You have to lead. You know, my philosophy is that if you're not engaged, either you bring a great leader 
and you let them run it and you step back. But if you're going to lead, you have to lead. I'm a very hands-on CEO, owner of the company. I haven't stopped working any less than what I used to do before. And for me, I've always said opportunity is what you chase and risk is what you mitigate. You know, so when you look at it, you don't get defined by the 1%, 2% of the issues. You get defined by the 98% of the success. You know, it's the people that are saying they're loving it and the experience they have and everything. And when you see opportunity, you just jump in and you figure it out. And I did this a long time ago when we had no money when we couldn't get a loan, when uh, most people told me it won't work because, you know, who cut fruit, put it on sticks and put it in a basket? How's that going to work? So we were doing this from scratch. And at that time, that's when it was really difficult. Now it's not difficult. So, you know, it's not as much assert. You have to show the passion. You have to lead. You have to jump in first and you have to kind of guide where guidance is needed. I spend a lot of time learning these days because this next generation is brilliant. I mean, just the way they think and the way they interact and, and the way they utilize a lot of these technologies and everything. I think with that, there's a lot of learning. And from there, you take how you can guide and take it to the next level. With uh, The Onion, this satirical website, they were saying how edible arrangements, like it defies capitalism. How can you keep selling fruit arranged flowers? How is there demand everywhere all over the world constantly? In a serious note, how do you keep a demand going? When I saw that article in Onion, I was honored, you know, to say, hey, thank you, you know, especially if you think we're that good, that we, we could keep creating demand and everything. It's not easy. There's a lot of work involved. I mean, building a brand, we've spent millions of dollars in the last 20 years. Every one of those products has to be executed properly. And I'll tell you what the Onion can learn from this is when you have a small business owner who leaves the job and says, I want to open a franchise and takes his life savings and goes and opens a store on Main Street town in the US, that's a force to contend with. That is magical because not only the blessings in that money, because that person worked very hard to earn it, and then they're gonna work very hard to protect it and they're gonna take care of every customer. So, And I think that's the magic. The magic with us was that I opened my first flower shop with $6,000 borrowed from my father's boss. And it was a business that had gone out of business, but that underdog, that part about wanting to just make sure it works, it worked. And I think that's the secret to success here. We, we are 900 owners that have put their life savings into this, and we're going to make this successful. And, and, you know, people will give me credit, you know, people will look at it that you started this, but no, it's 900 people mm. that started this. So that's the real energy of your company. It's all about small business. One thing about franchising that I love, we may not be billionaires, but if you take all of us together, the 900 of us and everything, we're billionaires. I mean, so it's not one person that makes 100 billion or 500 billion or 4 billion in an account. So we make millionaires, you know, so you put those guys together and you put fruit in their hands, you got a force to contend with. And something that's been key to you that we've talked a bit before is this idea of the American dream. And there are plenty of people who are pessimistic in the country now saying the American dream, it's over. There's too much inequality. What would you you say to that? What would you say to maybe an immigrant entrepreneur who is trying to make the best? A lot of these immigrants are coming from very little means. So I think for them, just being here, you know, there's the start of the American dream or being able to live and to provide for their family. I'm 
proof that if you want to work hard, you want to work smart, you want to turn around and take care of your customer, you want to you know, kind of do it the right way, that it's alive and well. And it's been alive and well. And I've heard this many times. I mean, I've been in business since I was 17 years old. And along the way in the late 80s, you hear it, you know, people would say, you know, uh, that the American dream may not be there or, or it's dead. But we were doing well. We had three shops. We were opening our fourth one, you know. And so then, this pessimism is nothing new. Yeah, I, I think yeah. there's a certain amount. If you want to focus on pessimism, if people want to focus on negativity, then yeah. you get negativity. Sure. Then you only stay with the negativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want to focus on what you can do not only to better yourself, but to better your community and to kind of better the people around you, then you will do that. Well, thank you very much, Tar. My pleasure. I really thank appreciate you for having it. Me. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. I'm Rich Filoni. Don't forget to subscribe to Success on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success.